Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Marks. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey guys, it's Johnny and welcome to episode 102 of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I am finally back in California, in Los Angeles, and Sam is back in his home in Tampa, Florida. Yeah, man. It's not not too often that we are both in Estados Unidos together. It is very unlikely for both of us to be in America at the same time. So too bad we're not going to be able to meet up. You're on the other side of the country. West East Coast. Coast East Coast. East Coast rivalry. <laughs> I was just in California last week, so we just missed each other. I was actually where you are, San Francisco. I'm in LA. Oh, man. <laughs> same, 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 right? I will be in San guys don't know our West Coast geography. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, New York, Alabama, same thing. New York, Miami, <laughs> yeah, somewhere in there. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm excited to be back and just in time because one of my credit cards is expiring this month. So I'm going to be screwed if I don't get all these replaced. I think it's uh, nice to live abroad, but I think coming home once a year just to get everything done, renew your yeah. driver licenses, renew your passport if needed, get yeah. your credit cards renewed, pick up some mail, and uh, pick up some stuff at Trader Joe's is kind of a the two best buck chuck is no longer two buck chuck. Is it? Sorry to tell you, has <laughs> it's it like gone four up? Four bucks or something? Oh I think. my god. Yeah, yeah, disappointing. But yeah, I agree with you on all the maintenance stuff. I, I've been doing a, a deep dive into it the last couple months. And I was in the same situation. Actually, Brian B- Bishop in the Boss Lounge was talking about credit cards after episode 100. Got me deep into a rabbit hole. So thank you for that, Brian. I spent about a week of my life digging into the stuff. But out of it, of course, came this episode, which I think everyone's going to enjoy, whether you're from the US or abroad. Credit cards are pretty interesting when you start looking into all the loyalty programs that are happening right now. Sort of like a big trend. And actually, out of this episode, I, I realized how big of an industry it actually is and how people really drive a lot of their purchasing behavior because of the type of credit cards that they have. So this week, we're going to have on Ted Rossman. He's a credit card analyst and an industry analyst at creditcards.com. This guy knows his stuff. It's a lot of fun talking to him. Yeah. And after this episode, we're going to talk about what's in our wallets and what you guys should do, whether you are from the U.S. or if you're abroad, there are programs for everyone. And I got some pretty strong opinions on this. So let's take a listen and let's chat right after the, the interview. Everyone, welcome back. We have on Ted Rossman, industry analyst at creditcards.com. And today we're talking about how to choose the best credit card for you. Ted, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. East Coast guys, I know you're up in New York City. Are you there year-round? I am, yes. Beautiful place. Want to spend more time there. My girlfriend's actually there as we speak, checking out the city. And I think I'll get up there late September. How long have you been living there, Ted? I'm a born and bred New Yorker. I've been here my whole life. And, uh, you know, yeah, definitely enjoy life in the big city. This is a nice time of year. You mentioned September. That's a great time to come up here. Still good weather. And uh, you're a Florida guy. So come here before it starts snowing. <laughs> and that can that can happen pretty quick. I know it's blazing hot there right now, but I've, I've seen photos in like early October where it's our, the city's already covered in snow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do like the variety, but I have to say summer's my favorite. 
Okay, I love it. I love it. Well, we'll get up there and check it out soon. I just got back from California. There's always a, a heated East Coast, West Coast battle, but hey, I'm, I'm East Coast to the bone. My sister's out in California, but got to give East Coast some love. I'm married to a Californian, so uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I know that whole East Coast, West Coast thing. There we go. There we go. So today we're going to talk about credit cards, comparing the best credit cards. I actually just went through this process, Ted. I've, I spent about a week kind of investigating the best credit card. We'll get into that towards the end of the episode, but we've had a lot of our listeners talking about almost uh, investing hacks for credit cards because the amount of points and the free trips that you can accumulate, in a sense, it's it's like savings and investing. And we wanted to do an, a dedicated episode on this um, because there's just a lot of information out there. So we're glad to get you on. And maybe uh, you can just give us a quick background on your uh, history and experience as an industry analyst for creditcards.com and how you got into the field. Yeah, sure. So I've been involved with creditcards.com for about seven years now, starting with the um, the then parent company, Bankrate. People may know Bankrate for mortgages and deposits and other personal finance advice. So I joined the Bankrate communications team back in 2011 and then um, you know got involved in, in creditcards.com through that. Bankrate at the time owned creditcards.com. Um, later on, we were both bought, I guess you could say, by Red mm-hmm. Ventures which is our, our current parent company, which is a, a really great digital marketing company based in the Carolinas. And, you know, really just passionate about credit card rewards. I'm an avid credit card user myself, specifically of cash back cards. I have a three-year-old daughter at home. So while we travel some, it's really more important to me to maximize my everyday spending. So by far, our biggest spending category, other than our mortgage, is groceries. And, um, you know, I have a cashback card that gives me and my family 3% back on groceries. I have a few other cashback cards, one with rotating 5% categories, another one with a flat rate on all spending. And, um, you know, I think it's a great way for people to maximize dollars they would have spent anyway. I know in my family's case, we made almost $1,400 last year in cash back rewards and it's really just free money. Uh, there's also a lot of great tactics out there that we can get into about travel. There's tons of great hacks that can land you uh, an amazing first class flight pretty much anywhere in the world and mm. uh, a lot of great sign up bonuses. It's a good time to get a new credit card and would love to talk with people about how they can maximize their points and spending and get a great trip or get some money back in their wallets. I love it. I love it. I'm a big travel guy, so I've been looking at travel back or travel rewards cards, and that's what I've always had. And um, the cashback element is great as well. So looking forward to diving into and how to compare those two kind of categories, if you will, later in the episode. And to start, I was just thinking, you know, there's always the perception, at least when I was getting out of college, that you got to be careful how many things that you apply for because it it can hurt your credit score. Is that true or is that just a myth when you go out and apply for, say, more credit cards that that's going to actually leave a dent in your credit score? It is true that there could be a small but very temporary hit to your credit score for applying for a new card. Mm -hmm. But really over the long haul, it's actually going to help you to have more credit. So let's get into that. So the number one factor in somebody's credit score is their payment history. Do you pay your bills on time? That makes up 35% of your score. Now, 30% of your score is going to come from what's called your credit utilization. That's how much credit you're using divided by how much credit you have. So, you know, if you have a card with a $10,000 limit 
and you're using $5,000 of credit, your utilization is 50%, which actually is not so great. You really want to keep it ideally below 30%. If you can keep it even lower, like below 10%, that's mm. even better. So um, those two factors combined make up about two-thirds of your score. Now, there's also a 15% factor, which is the length of your credit history. And then there's two 10% factors. Um, one would be, are you applying for new credit? And that's where you can get that small but temporary ding. And um, you know the other 10% factor is the mix of credit that you have. So lenders want to know that you've effectively managed different types of credit, credit cards, student loans, auto loans, a mortgage, things like that. So, you know, when I say that there's a small but temporary ding to your score, that might mean like five points for the first six months, let's say, mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. you apply for a new card. But that's really not significant. And the benefits of getting a new card can be huge in the travel and reward space, but can actually help your credit also, because when you get a new card, you have more available credit. So that mm -hmm. utilization factor, which is 30%, much more important than the new credit, 10% factor, um, your utilization should actually improve when you get a new card, unless you're just doing a whole lot of spending and, and running mm -hmm. that card up to the max, which we definitely wouldn't advise. So, um, you know, in general, I know people that have 30 credit score, 30 credit cards, I should say, that have better credit scores than people that have one or two. Wow. So that's super interesting what you said about the utilization rate. And I guess I would have always thought that it may have been actually different. Like if you're almost using up all your credit, but you're paying it off on time, that that would be seen as sort of a good thing. But I've never actually asked for a credit extension, a credit, I don't know, we call it credit line or credit extension when you, when you get your credit or maybe it's credit limit when you get that raise. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've never asked for that for my banks. So I think my on my two or right now I have like Bank of America travel uh, travel ca uh, rewards cards. I think those credit lines are somewhere around like twelve thousand dollars. I probably use like between six and eight each month. I'm sure I could get that increased if I just call them, and then that would actually improve my credit score, right? Because it would be they would just be increasing it, and I'd be utilizing less of it. Exactly. I think that's great advice for people looking to improve their credit. We've done studies at creditcards.com that found that about 85% of the time, if you just call up your current issuer, ask for a higher credit limit, you're going to get that. And it is going to help your credit utilization. You know, another thing you can do is to pay your bill multiple times throughout the month. So this is an interesting part about credit scores. We always want people to pay their statement in full before any interest accrues. But there's that 30-day grace period. So like, let's say your, uh, your credit card bill comes on the first of every month, and maybe in that month you spent, in my earlier example, $5,000 on a card with a $10,000 limit. So even though you're hopefully gonna pay off that $5,000 bill right up front and not pay any interest, it's still gonna show up on your credit report as if you were using 50% of that credit line. So what you could do if you wanted to really geek out on credit scores and improve your, your credit, which is especially relevant if you're in the market for a new auto loan or a new mortgage or something like that, you can actually make multiple payments throughout the month. So you could throw a few thousand dollars at the card even before the statement arrives. And then even though you spent $5,000 that month, your card balance may only show up as $2,000 if you 
put in a $3,000 payment mm. sometime mid-month. So I know we're getting a little advanced about some of the tricks of the trade here, but um, you know, I think for people that are, are really keeping a close eye on their credit, uh, that's something you could do that would help. Got it. When I applied for this new credit card, I just got approved. They sent me a statement that actually had my credit score on it. And I was shocked to find out that I thought it it was a lot lower than I thought it was going to be. I was always the guy like, oh, I have perfect credit score. I've never missed a payment since college. And, you know, I probably have 800 or above. Uh, what's, the, what's the limit? It's like 900 is the top. 850 is the top. 850 is the top. So I always thought I was basically the top just because I always pay my bills on time. I didn't really understand how credit scores work. Come to find out my credit score is 664 and I looked into it. I used uh, Experian to look into it mm -hmm. and I found out that I have a $75 debt that's been with collections agent for the last two years from an old hospital bill. Um, oh, no. And I guess, I mean, I don't know how uh, that's got to be a big dent, right? If it's with collections. That's a huge dent. Yeah. I think that's easily costing you at least a hundred points. Wow. Okay. So I guess if I get that cleared up, does that automatically go away and I'll, you know, over time I'll get that, those, you know, hundred points back or is that going to leave a, a nasty dent for a while? Yeah. I mean, negative information on your report can last up to seven years. There are some things that you could try to do in the interim. Um, there's mm -hmm. been some major improvements, especially when it comes to medical debt with uh, FICO. So FICO is the main credit score um, issuing company. And um, then their newest iteration, they've really taken some steps to um, not ding people as much for medical debt because there's a lot of erroneous medical debt out there. There's Everybody knows how challenging it is to get reimbursed by insurance. And so FICO is trying to have a longer grace period now before medical debt shows up on your report, like mm -hmm. if it used to be 30 days or 60 days, and maybe it just took the insurance company several months to, to pay back, people were getting unfairly dinged for that. So they're trying to make some improvements with medical debt. Unfortunately, in your case, if it's already gone to collections, you're definitely in too deep for that. I mean, <laughs> I, I would say especially it's such a small value transaction that obviously you want to pay that off as soon as you can. Um, but I would also try to get some advice from you know, maybe a nonprofit credit counseling company like, um, you know, Money Management International is a really good one. And uh, there's also some credit repair companies that might be able to help you out there because that that's really a, a pretty innocent one-time mistake that you wouldn't want to hurt you for many years to come on applying for new credit. Mm. All right. Well, that was sad news, but at least I got approved for the credit card and I'm not immediately looking to take especially larger lines of credit for say a mortgage or a car coming up so uh so i can survive but it just goes to show you that even if you think you have great credit and you've been doing well for say 10 years or more just one little thing like a slip bill of some sort that goes to collections and you miss the mail you know that can leave a big dent in your credit score and it can negatively affect you for you know any type of of big uh purchases coming up in the future yeah it is really unfortunate you know and also um there's a lot of errors out there so studies show that about one in three americans has a significant error on their credit reports so mm. it's really important for everybody to check their credit. It's definitely possible for things to slip through. Maybe somebody with a similar name or social security number, you know, they have debt that in some cases might accidentally be showing up on your credit report and you can dispute that and, and get it removed. Um, there could also just be innocent mistakes or 
Um, you know, in your case, the medical debt thing slipped through. My wife and I had an example when we were applying for our house. We really had not previously been diligent about tracking our credit, and, and we've done a much better job since then. But we were shocked to hear from the mortgage lender that our credit wasn't nearly as good as we thought. And it turned out that one year, my wife had accidentally underpaid her state taxes by a small amount. I think it was $200 or something. And we never knew about it. And it turns out that you know, it went all the way to the courts, there was a judgment, you know, it, it was a whole mess that mm -hmm. had we known about it, we absolutely would have paid the bill right away. But I guess it got sent to an old address and, you know, things get lost in the shuffle. So we were able to work with a credit repair company and, and get that cleaned up because it really did ding her score by about 100 points. And it was just such an innocent, honest mistake. And, um, you know, these things are happening to a lot of people. So I think the Credit bureaus are trying to improve upon all this, but nobody cares as much about your money as you do. So sure. I would definitely say you know, go to sites like annualcreditreport.com and at creditcards.com. We also have the ability to check your credit report and score for free every month. And just take a look. I mean, it's good to familiarize yourself with what's on there and in some cases, maybe what's on there that shouldn't be on there. And would you recommend just checking it every now and then or subscribing to a service that maybe sends you monthly updates or sends you updates when there's a, a significant change in it? Yeah, I would say it's something that you should be monitoring at least three or four times a year, I would say. Now, we find that a lot of people don't do that. We did a study at creditcards.com back in the spring. It was six months after that major Equifax breach came to mm. light. And we found that still, even in the six months after this massive breach, when millions and millions of people's information was stolen, we still found that about half of people had not checked their credit in those six months. So definitely something you should do. It's quick. It's easy. It's free. Annualcreditreport.com is endorsed by the government. That's a place where you can get your free credit report once a year from each of the three major bureaus. So that's Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. Mm. But there's also other sources you can look at on an ongoing basis. Like most banks and credit card issuers now will actually give you a free credit score every month. And that's uh, a really positive change that's happened in the consumer finance space. And, you know, really just helping people to to stay on top of what can be kind of a very murky area, uh, but mm. it's a very important area because if you don't have good credit, you're going to pay a lot more for things like mortgages and auto loans. And in some cases, you might not even be able to get products like that or a credit mm. card if your score is too low. So definitely important to not just pay your bills on time, but also be aware of your financial history. Now, when we go into start talking about some of these credit cards that are available and especially some of the ones with a lot of rewards and some of the premium ones, is there a kind of a standard benchmark that credit card companies use uh, in terms of a score for issuing a credit card and approving applicants? Mm -hmm. Yeah, typically, if you have a score above 740, you're going to qualify for the best terms on credit cards and other products like mortgages and auto loans. So that's where I know it's fun to think that, oh, I've got an 800 and I really want to try to get a perfect 850. <laughs> 
You could try. Um, it's really not going to get you other, anything other than bragging rights. Uh, 740 is really the tipping point for the best offers. The average credit score is around a 700. God, and- I'm below average. <laughs> <laughs> You can still get good credit cards if your score is in the, let's say, 670 or plus range. That That's another tipping point we often see. We, we like to talk about good credit as like 670 to 740, and then excellent would be anything above 740. All right. I'm 664, so we'll just call me average or below. You can call me below average, Ted. It's okay. I won't be offended. <laughs> you got your new card though, so good I for did. You. I when I got it, I got it like quick. It was approved in a day, so I'm like, oh yeah, man, my my credit score is awesome. I saw that, and it was a big red flag. So now I got a got some work ahead of me to get that sorted out. But anyways, going into the good cards and what are the important considerations when choosing a CC? I know mine, but I wanted to know if what kind of you know what what you see as the main factors when people are looking for credit cards. Yeah, so I think that there's a couple key questions that you want to ask yourself when you're thinking of applying for a new credit card. Number one would be, what are your spending habits? And then number two would be, what do you want to get out of this new card? Because um, credit card rewards and really even airline rewards in general have become frequent spender programs. So you really need to think about, are you spending most of your money on travel? Are you somebody who dines out a lot? Do you buy a lot of groceries? Do you buy a lot of gas? You know, these are the ways that you're going to earn the points. And then the more fun part is what you're going to do with them. So are you the kind of person that wants cash back or are you the kind of person that wants to score a really fancy trip and you could get first class airfare, you can get free hotel rooms? The answers to those two questions will definitely help you determine which card to apply for. So I almost think that just based on what you said earlier, where you're getting 3% cash back. I feel like a lot of people would always just say, well, I'll just take cash back because then I can use it for everything. Why be pigeonholed into something that I need to redeem for a hotel or or travel? Why not just take cash back? And then if I want to travel, I can. But also if I want to spend it on other stuff, I can as well. Do you see a lot of people kind of taking that route because of that reason? Yes. Our research has shown that cash back is the most popular credit card reward because Everybody loves free money, and it also tends to be simpler. If you know some of the inside tricks of the trade, there's there's ways to get much better value for your points from things like first-class airline redemptions, mm-hmm. but not everybody wants to spend that much time and energy managing their points, and, and not everybody is a big traveler either. Maybe you can't get the time off from work or you have family obligations. So Cashback is the most popular. Um, there's a lot of great travel benefits, and there are some cards that let you get both all in one. So this is really an important sweet spot for people to be aware of are the so-called transferable points programs. So we're talking about things like Chase. They have ultimate rewards or American Express um, with their membership rewards program. These can be redeemed for either cashback or travel. And they can even be transferred to various partners. Like with American Express, you might transfer to Delta Airlines, for example. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, all these programs have a variety of airline and hotel transfer partners. That's where, if you really want to play the game, you can maximize your value. Um, but the most important thing, I think, is um, points programs that, as you said, don't pigeonhole you. So, you know, you, you can get cash back. You can get 
travel redemptions. Um, in many ways, that's the best of both worlds. So I think that's attractive to a lot of people. Gotcha. So there's some other considerations that I wanted to see how how popular they were based on your guys' research. So something that I don't really think about when I apply for a credit card, but I'm sure a lot of people do, is what the actual interest rate is going to be on, I guess, late payments or or mm-hmm. is that like... Because when I get a credit card, I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to pay it off every month. Usually I do. Um, and for some reason, I miss a payment. But I, I th- a lot of people will actually use a credit card to almost kind of bridge a payday, right? Uh, and in that case, there's there's definitely interest rate considerations. Definitely. So with these rewards, credit cards, if you're the kind of person that carries a balance, you really shouldn't be looking at the fancy rewards cards that are going to give you 50,000 points and mm-hmm get you a free trip to Dubai. I mean, if, if you're the kind of person that already has credit card debt or thinks that you might get into credit card debt, you're probably better off either not getting a credit card or mm-hmm. getting a card that's specifically targeted for somebody who wants 0% APR for the first, let's say, you know, there's an offer out there now for 20 months. So US Bank has a card, the Platinum Visa, 0% interest first 20 months. That can be a great card for somebody who's buying a house, let's say. Mm-hmm. They want to do a lot of improvements. They're buying new furniture. They're buying new appliances. That's an awesome use of a credit card. It's really not because of the rewards. It's because of the 0% interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, the average credit card interest rate is 17%. So if you're getting 3% back on groceries or if you're getting 5% back on gas, it really pales in comparison to the interest you'll be paying. So that's another important distinction about, you know, can you pay this bill off in full every month? And if so, the world is your oyster. There's a lot of great rewards credit cards out there. Um, but if, if you are somebody in debt, I think you should be looking more at the 0% interest kind of cards and, and promotional offers there. Makes a lot of sense. All right, let's focus on the big sexy credit cards, the ones everyone that uh, that is thinking about these cars, we're going to assume that they don't have debt or don't carry a debt, don't need a payday bridge. I was recently over in Spain and I was renting a, a, a car and they asked me if I wanted the insurance and I, I took all the insurance and my insurance came out to be like 500 euros over the course of say 10 days or something. Pretty expensive. And Someone was like, well, why don't you just, you're, you don't need to do that because your credit card will definitely cover that insurance. It'll cover the, the damage protection and everything. And I didn't know that. And I looked into it and it turned out it did for a lot of cards, but some cards it didn't. Uh, is this kind of a new thing or is that something that's, that's been around for a while? I think it's increasingly a selling point for some of the fancier cards like the Chase Sapphire Reserve card, for example, which launched with great fanfare in 2016 and in many ways has really revolutionized the credit card space for millennials because of all of the travel perks it offers. That's one that immediately comes to mind as a card that has a great rewards program in general, but is particularly strong when it comes to rental car insurance. Mm -hmm. So. A lot of cards say they offer rental car insurance, but really what they're talking about is secondary coverage, which is really not what you're looking for. So what that means is coverage that kicks in only after your personal insurance. So, you know, if you decline the uh, the coverage you're offered at the rental car desk, you decline from budget or Hertz or Avis or whoever, and you have personal car insurance, like from Allstate or State Farm or somebody like that. They're going to cover you for being in that accident, but 
they're going to charge you your deductible, which is probably going to be 500 or even $1,000. And the car insurance companies also typically raise rates after you've been in an accident. So if your credit card is only going to provide secondary coverage after that, that's really not what you want. After mm-hmm. you've been in an accident, paid your several hundred or thousand dollar deductible and gotten your rates raised, you don't want to do that. You want what's called primary car rental insurance from your credit card. And the Chase Sapphire Reserve is one of only a handful of cards that offers that type of primary coverage. So what they're going to do is as long as you pay for that car rental with that card, they're going to cover you for that collision damage. And they're not going to charge you that $500 or $1,000 deductible. Uh, They're not going to raise your rates. It's really a, a very important and I think very often overlooked part of, um, you know, the credit card space. Mm -hmm. And I think especially with the Sapphire Reserve, they have stiff competition from other fancy cards like the City Prestige and the Amex Platinum. But something that uh, Chase has really made a priority with that Sapphire Reserve card, and they also have it with their somewhat less fancy Sapphire Preferred, is that primary rental car coverage. And I think that's a perfect thing for, well, one one point that you mentioned that I thought was interesting uh, in my research was that if you have that and you do in that scenario, get in some type of, of let's say you hit a curb and you, you damage the car, you don't actually have to call your, if you have other insurance, you don't have to call that other insurance company, which would end up raising your rates, right? You just deal with it directly through the credit card company. You never even have to talk to your insurance company. Yeah, exactly. That's part of what makes it such an attractive credit card perk. Right. And I think for a lot of people listening, this makes a lot of sense because maybe if you're in the US for part of the year, you're Ubering or you know place to place or occasionally you're renting a car, you're pretty much covered there. I don't think it covers your personal liability, but in the case that you hit a curb or have some damage to your car and there's not another person directly involved, you're going to be covered. And then also likewise, when you're abroad and you're renting a car, you have you basically have insurance. You can always just reject the uh, the the rental car insurance. But as Ted said, you have to pay for that transaction with uh, the, the credit card. That's correct? That is correct. Yeah. And also, you know, another tip for people who maybe they don't want to get a new card specifically for this rental car insurance, um, although in some cases that might make sense. It's, um, it's something also, if you currently have an American Express card, they actually have a really interesting program where they'll charge you $20 per rental and you can basically buy the collision damage waiver from them on any existing American Express card. You just need to sign up in advance of your trip. That's a compelling option for people who already have an Amex card and might want to do this for the occasional trip. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Ted, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about points redemption. We talked a little earlier about accumulating points and how depending on what categories you spend most on, you can get more points. Maybe it's 1x, 2x, 3x on certain types of spends. But then there's also redemption discounts with a lot of cards. So if you trade in 100,000 points, maybe you get uh, an extra bonus on redeeming those. Uh, Could you explain a little bit of, of how that works? Yeah, sure. So um, that's another good example of the difference between the Chase Sapphire Reserve and the Chase Sapphire Preferred, for example. So these are two similar cards, same issuer. They have the same sign-up bonus, which is 50,000 points. And um, in the case of the Sapphire Reserve, they're going to give you a 50% bonus on your redemptions. So essentially what that means is you can take your 
50,000 points sign-up bonus and get travel worth $750. With the Sapphire Preferred, the bonus is 25%. So you get an extra 25% on your 50,000 miles. That's going to equate to about $625 in travel. Now, with both of those cards, if you just redeem those 50,000 points for cash, you would get one cent per point. So you'd get $500. So that's one quick example of how with these fancy travel cards, you can get more value from travel than from cash back. There's also even more details about, well, if you transfer to some of their partners, like if you transfer to United Miles, you might even be able to score a better redemption. But these cards are very popular, and um, there's a, a big difference in the annual fee. The Sapphire Reserve has a $450 annual fee. The Sapphire Preferred only has a $95 annual fee, and mm-hmm. it's waived the first year. So um, a lot of other things about the cards are equal. That's um, that's a key consideration for people, although you know, I would point out that the Sapphire Reserve has some additional perks, and this is part of the reason millennials love it, because you get a $300 travel credit every year. So assuming you're the kind of person that really flies anywhere, or you can even redeem this for train tickets, um, that's going to knock your annual fee down to $150. And Mm -hmm. there's other benefits like you can get global entry and that's a hundred dollar program that they'll pay for once every four years. So, um, you know, definitely ways you can maximize the value of that card. You can get lounge access. You get that with the Sapphire Reserve. You don't get it with the Sapphire Preferred. So, you know, these are some of the the key distinctions when you get into the premium credit card space. And we could talk, too, about some of the competitors. Like if you stay in hotels all the time, the City Prestige card could be a really good one for you because that's another one with a steep $450 annual fee. But they have a great program where when you're staying at a hotel, the fourth night is going to be completely free. Mm. So that's something that really sets that premium apart. Yeah, it is. And then, um, you know, the American Express premium card is called the Platinum card that has a $550 annual fee, but they too defray that with different methods. Like there's a $200 redemption for um, airline fee incidentals like check bags and seat assignments. So 550 minus that 200, and then you get another $200 redemption for Uber rides. So they'll give you $15 a month free with Uber. You get $35 in December. So that ends up being $200 over the course of the year. So you know, when you talk about people that these are really cards for upper middle class, kind of mm-hmm. mass affluent kind of people, um, but very popular among millennials who like to travel. Got it. Ted, I was thinking this might be a fun little exercise. If we could run through my personal desires with the credit cards and then you could make a quick redemption, not knowing everything about me, but maybe enough to make a, a general uh, suggestion on which card I should get. And then I'll see which card I just did get with a 664 score and see if it matches up. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So I am looking for a card that th- those were some of the key points that we already talked on renter's insurance. Cause I rent cars quite a bit and I'm not in the U S uh, about half the year. So also with that, no foreign exchange fees, really important to me. Cause I'm spending ha- half the money I'm spending is again, abroad. Uh, the points are, are, I would say, pretty important. But the way that I, I accumulate them, I guess, is not necessarily the, the top consideration, just that I have some flexibility in how I can redeem those points and how I, you know, how I can accumulate them. I don't think there's a particular category that 
I spend the most on, but I, I do eat out quite a bit. And then uh, the the one that was most important to me was actually lounge access because I travel a lot. I don't get lounges a lot of times in the U.S. now. Even if you fly first class, you don't get lounge access. Um, and you know, hanging out at Fort Lauderdale Airport, Atlanta Airport, New York without lounge access can sometimes be pretty miserable. Uh, and then again, international lounge access as well. So I'm spending a lot of time at airports. So that was kind of the big, the big one that I was looking at. I didn't really care too much about interest rate. The annual fee wasn't too much a concern. Um, credit limit, not too much of a concern. And then global acceptance was just because I'm, I'm spending at so many different types of places, uh, then making sure that that card is going to be accepted in basically all those places is really important. Yeah, so I would say given all the parameters you just lined out, I think that that Chase Sapphire Reserve card could be a great option. Uh, of the other cards I mentioned, the other premium cards like City Prestige and Amex Platinum, what sets the Chase Sapphire Reserve apart is it's the only one with primary rental car insurance out of those three. Um, it's going to give you really great lounge access. You can get into all the priority pass lounges, which is about a thousand lounges all around the world. So these are all great benefits of this card. You get three points for every dollar you spend on travel and restaurants. And, That's a lot. Um, yeah, it is. It's really, uh, really a great offer and. You know, it's a card that's been tremendously popular. When Chase launched it in 2016, they actually ended up taking over a $300 million marketing loss on a subsequent quarter because of all the points that people were redeeming. I think this is kind <laughs> of a, a fun, not so often talked about aspect of, of credit card rewards is that it's huge business. And the airlines make literally billions of dollars in selling their miles to these credit card issuers. And yeah, Chase and, and their CEO, Jamie Dimon, was saying that it was actually a loss they were happy to take because it got so many people excited about this card and about mm -hmm. doing business with the bank. And you know, I think they view it as a, a huge success. The sign-up bonus back then was 100,000 points. They've since dropped it to 50,000. So uh, still very good. And I, I think that's a card that would really fit the lifestyle that you're talking about. I like it. Well, that is what I got. So we 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 got it together and we got it right on the money. And I got it with a 664 uh, for anyone out there that's credit score is a little banged up. But I'm I'm so far very happy. I've only had the card for a week. And I'll tell you the other card I just got because I was flying from uh, San Francisco to Charlotte yesterday. And I was at the airport and I was bummed to find out that my new Chase Sapphire Reserve card did not get me an Admirals Club. And that was the only lounge that was available at the San Francisco Airport Terminal 1. So I got duped into signing up for AA Advantage, which I think is by Citibank. Mm -hmm. And that gets you into Admirals Club. It's also a $450 annual fee. Uh, but the, uh, but I realized that a lot of the priority pass lounges were not in a lot of the airports that I wanted to be in. So Admirals Club seemed like a good lounge membership. And then I guess the other way you can do Admirals Club is you can actually buy uh, an Admirals Club membership, but it's it's like 550 So I thought, oh, I'll just get the credit card for 450 and maybe have a few more perks. But I didn't think that card was great except for the lounge access to Admirals Club. But now I have – with those two lounge accesses, then I, I have pretty good coverage domestically and internationally. Yeah, I think that card is especially valuable for people that fly American Airlines a lot. So mm -hmm. if you're listening from a hub city and American is your airline, 
I think that makes that card a lot more attractive. Same thing with all the airlines have co-branded cards. So Mm -hmm. like if you're in Atlanta, you might be better off, probably would be better off with the Delta card or, you know, and so on. Uh, United has big hubs in Chicago and San Francisco and Newark. And those are places where it might make sense to get the United card. Um, Even for more casual travelers, those airline co-branded cards can be good because they typically come with free check bags for you and other members of your traveling party. So even though they usually charge an annual fee of at least $95, um, that's usually more on the lower end. The card you mentioned obviously is is fancier, comes with the Admiral's Club access. That's the $450 annual fee. But even the more baseline airline cards typically will charge an annual fee of about $95. But if you're going with your family and you're checking bags, you know, even two trips a year, you can come out ahead uh, just based on saving mm. those fees. And Ted, do you guys find that people are signing up for credit cards and accumulating credit cards just for the additional benefits that each credit card gives you? I've always been a, someone with just two credit cards, one for business, one for personal. But now just in the last week, now I have four. I just grabbed two more. And it seems like it'd be pretty easy to continue going down that route. Yeah, the average credit card holder has three cards, but there's definitely a lot of people that play the points game and have 20 or I've even heard of 30. So uh, it really depends what what you're looking for, what fits your lifestyle. If you're the kind of person that really treats it as a game, uh, you can definitely have fun and get great benefits from having lots of cards. Mm-hmm. If you're somebody who's maybe not as organized with your finances and runs the risk of letting bills slip through the cracks, then you probably do want to limit yourself to a smaller number of cards. But because these cards mean different things for different people and give different kinds of rewards, it definitely makes sense if you're up for it for mixing and matching. Um, In my case, I mentioned that my primary credit card goal is cash back. So Mm -hmm. I have three different cash back cards and I'm thinking of getting a fourth. But what I have right now is so I have this American Express blue cash everyday card that gives me 3% back on groceries and 2% on gas and also 2% at department stores. So put all my grocery spending on that. I have a, another cash back card called Chase Freedom, which has rotating 5% categories. So mm. with that one, like one quarter, it might be restaurants. Another quarter, it might be gas. Another quarter might be groceries. So you know, you can get a great 5% return in that quarter. And then I also have more of a plain vanilla cashback card. It's actually my oldest card from Capital One, the Quicksilver. That gives me 1.5% back on all my purchases. So okay. that's kind of my everything else card. Um, there's definitely ways that I could do better with this. Like, for example, there's a, a city double cash card that is going to give you effectively 2% back on all your spending. So that's one that I'm considering getting. There's also a card from Wells Fargo called the Propel American Express card that I'm really thinking of getting. I, I think this is probably going to be my next sign up because, as I said, I'm a big cash back guy. I don't like annual fee cards, just a personal preference. Um, this card doesn't have any annual fee. It gives a sign up bonus worth $300 and it gives three points for every dollar you spend on travel and dining. And those are currently not areas that I'm really maximizing. And when I did a little audit of my spending, I'm actually spending a lot more on travel than I thought I was. Mm. And the ability to get 3% back on that is attractive. Something that many people probably don't realize, too, is that a lot of these issuers like Wells Fargo define travel very broadly. So 
I commute by train every month. I live in the suburbs and I commute into Manhattan and my monthly train ticket is over $300. That would actually code as a travel purchase mm. on this card. So I could get 3% back on my monthly train ticket as well as any money my family's spending on airlines and hotels and gas. And you know, I, I think that it could really put a lot of money back in my pocket and, and other people's pocket if you have similar spending tendencies. That 3% cash back and 5% is is really significant if you think about it. It's literally just a 5% discount on whatever you're purchasing if you're getting cash back, right? Yeah, that's why it makes sense. That's why really if you're using cash or if you're using a debit card, you're missing out mm -hmm. on these rewards. So, um, you know, again, assuming you can pay that bill in full – at the end of the month, it's an absolute no-brainer to use credit cards, get cash back, get travel rewards. Another benefit of credit cards is that you get better consumer protections. Mm -hmm. So the fraud protections are a lot better on credit cards than on debit cards because if your debit card gets hacked, chances are the financial institution will eventually make you whole. But in the interim, that's real money missing from a real account. So it's money out of your checking account that you're not going to be able to use right away to pay your mortgage, your rent, whatever else you need to buy with a credit card because it's on credit. You know, it's not real money, so to speak that it's, um, it's not, it's not like the horse is out of the barn and, and it's hard mm. to get him back in there. Gotcha. All right, Ted, this is, this is good information. Uh, I just wanted to kind of summarize with, a couple for just to categorize for people that, that are out there, the three kind of premium cards that you had alluded to that have an annual fee seem to be the, the Chase Sapphire Reserve, the Citibank Prestige, and mm -hmm. also the Amex Platinum. Was those kind of the, the three main ones that have an annual fee that you think should be considered for people looking for a more premium card? Yeah, those are really the three big premium cards. Um, they charge annual fees of $450 a year in the case of the Sapphire Reserve and the City Prestige. And then the Amex Platinum is actually $550. Although, as I said, they have these programs where you get travel credits and you mm -hmm. get global entry credit. And there's ways to really bring that down. If those numbers scare you, there's also a second tier of cards. Like, for example, the... Um, City Thank You Premier Card, the American Express Gold Card, the um, Chase Sapphire Preferred. Those are maybe better options for somebody who's just looking to dip their toe into the annual fee space. They're mm -hmm. still great travel cards. They still have attractive sign-up bonuses like 50,000 points in the case of the Chase Sapphire Preferred. It's actually 60,000 on the City Thank You Premier. And these are really cards geared towards frequent travelers and you can get, um, you know, two or three points per dollar. It's two in the case of the Sapphire Preferred. It's three for the City Thank You Premier on all of your travel spending. So these are, are definitely attractive cards as well and maybe don't come with quite as much sticker shock. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to miss out on a few benefits like, you know, you're not going to get the lounge access. For example, um, you're not going to get the global entry fee waiver. So um, just things to consider. Um, but it definitely um, lots of options out there for people. And how about the best available card, in your opinion, with no annual fee, just for everyday spending, not, uh, not anything in particular to travel cash back or any, any certain type of lifestyle? I think if you want the simplest, you should be looking at something like the City Double Cash. That's just a flat 2% cash back on everything you buy 
very easy, very set it and forget it. Mm. Uh, I think that uh, just to mention again that Wells Fargo Propel card, the one that I'm thinking of getting, that one's not quite as simple, but I think it is a very attractive, no annual fee card that mixes both travel and cashback benefits because it comes with a $300 sign-up bonus. There's no sign-up bonus currently on the City Double Cash, um, but this Wells Fargo Propel card, $300 sign-up bonus, three points back on all of your travel and dining spending and with no annual fee. Um, that That's one that I'm probably going to add to my wallet here soon. Hmm. Gotcha. And just as a whole, do you know, are these cards available to pretty much anyone or maybe only U.S. citizens? Yeah, typically for these U.S. credit cards, you need to have things like a U.S. taxpayer ID. So that's either your social security number or, you know, maybe in some cases, if you're stationed in the U.S., have a work visa, you know, maybe in that case you would qualify. But for the most part, they're looking for people with you know, U.S. Social Security number, U.S. bank account, U.S. Mm-hmm. address, um, some exceptions, as I mentioned. But, um, you know, if you're somebody who's listening in the U.K. or Australia or Japan or, or somewhere else in the world and, you know, don't have those American, you know, addresses and citizenship and um, proof of income, you're not going to be able to get one of these fancy U.S. based credit cards. Mm-hmm. But I would imagine in all those countries, especially the ones you said, they're going to have they're going to have credit card options that are very similar, um, just issued by their own local banks. Yeah, definitely. You know, yeah, there, there's a lot of cards out there in all these local markets. I, I would say specifically like in the UK, for example, that's a market I know some about with credit cards and the rewards are not as lucrative there. It has to do with it's actually the same reason why debit card rewards are not very lucrative in the US, because there's been government regulations like here it's called the Durban Amendment. So it it caps the amount of money that issuers can make on a debit card swipe. Mm-hmm. So every time somebody swipes a card, they're going to get a, a Visa or, or MasterCard, you know, is going to get a cut of that from the merchant. And because debit card interchange is capped, there's really not as much incentive for the issuers to offer debit card rewards to consumers. Now on credit cards, it's a much more lucrative market for the issuers. You know, they're going to share some of that revenue with the consumer, entice you to use your card at the point of sale. Um, that's very much a thing in the U.S. Um, there's regulations in the U.K. and elsewhere that are not so lucrative for the issuing banks, and therefore the rewards often aren't mm-hmm. as good. Um, but you know, just something to be aware of. I think when we talk about international travel too. It's interesting because when Americans go abroad, one of the common complaints I hear is that they sometimes have difficulty using their U.S.-based credit card in other places, Um, specifically places like train kiosks Mm -hmm. or unmanned toll booths. Um, We've come a long way in the last few years with our chip cards, but there's still in Europe in particular what's called chip and pin where Mm -hmm. you need to actually put in a pin number if you're trying to buy tickets from an unmanned train station booth, let's say, and that can still be a challenge for people with American credit cards. It's typically not a problem when there's a person to process the transaction because we <laughs> now you have chip and signature technology, but because we haven't gone whole hog into the chip and pin thing, um, if you're an American who travels abroad a lot and really would benefit 
from a chip and pin card. There are a few available from U.S. banks. Um, one that is popular is called the Barclay card, Arrival Plus, World Elite, MasterCard. Mm-hmm. I know it's a mouthful, but uh, that card has chip and pin capability. So if you're the kind of person that is going to be traveling abroad a lot and um, you know wants to just use your card, punch in a, a keypad, and be on your way, um, that's something to consider as we talk about credit cards and international usage. Yeah, those European merchants really do not like when you have to sign <laughs> for it. It's uh, it's such an extra added step to the whole checkout process. Um, I I always have the the signature cards still, but um, I always get a funny look in Europe when they when they ask you to sign and they have to pull out a pen that they're not accustomed to. So, Ted, just in kind of summary, what uh, you know, you study these credit cards and kind of the trends over the course of the last decade. What are some of the things that you're seeing? Are, are things improving or are different categories of points getting more popular? What trends are you seeing? Yeah, I think this is very much the golden age of credit card rewards. I think that for the longest time, everybody was saying that, oh, millennials don't like credit cards and they have so much student loan debt and they're very debt averse and they're just going to use debit for everything. There is definitely a student loan crisis, but we're also seeing that millennials are signing up for credit cards in large numbers, especially older millennials. You know, let's say people late 20s, early 30s. These are the kinds of people that are in many cases buying homes and having children. And millennials definitely do want credit cards. And I think that the Sapphire Reserve really proved this in 2016 because I think it exceeded everybody's wildest dreams, you know, probably chase most of all, because millennials really do want this card and they want the experiences and they want the travel. And I think increasingly we're seeing issuers come up with cards that are catering to the millennial audience. Like, um, you know, there's one that Uber has, the Uber visa that gives 4% back on dining and 3% back on travel and 2% back on online purchases, everything from Uber itself to things like Netflix. And, you know, that's a card that I think has really caught the millennial eye. And another one, which just relaunched recently is the saver card from Capital One. So that card gives 4% back on dining and 4% back on experiences, which is a really interesting credit card perk that includes Things like sports tickets, concert tickets, movie theaters. That's a really unique offering that I think, again, is is speaking to people in their 20s and 30s that, as we keep hearing, value experiences more than they value things. And mm. I think that these are all positive trends for the credit card industry. And it maybe wasn't so much that millennials didn't want credit cards. It was that they didn't want credit cards marketed to their parents. And I think now there's um, there's a lot of trends that are are really coming together and um, are very millennial friendly. Wonderful. Appreciate that insight, Ted. How about any resources or any important material to share with the listeners before we break off? Of course, links to creditcards.com. Yeah, creditcards.com. You can compare cards in a variety of categories. We also have a lot of great written advice, everything from maximizing your points and miles to getting out of debt. Um, We have a program that you can sign up for that helps you monitor your credit score and report every month and really just helping you stay on top of your financial life and really just maximize stuff that you're doing anyway. I I think that credit cards are really a huge tool in 
building wealth and getting some fun experiences along the way. Tag, great stuff. Appreciate the insight on this episode on credit cards. I'm going to get out there and start using my Chase Sapphire Reserve card along with a lot of other millennials, it seems. And uh, I'm also going to work on improving my credit score because that was an eye opener. I don't think I checked my credit score in the last five years, just always assumed it was good. So good advice on just staying current with that stuff and taking action to increase it and always keep that under check. Appreciate all your time and coming on the show. Thanks again, Ted. Hey, it was fun. Thanks for having me. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Is that the, no, there's no sound for a credit card being swiped, is there? You just be? made it. You just made it. That's 3% cash back, buddy. Oh, I like it. You know what? To be honest, I am perfectly happy with 1.5% cash back and never having to think about my credit cards ever. But after listening to this interview, I realized you know what? It might be smart to have more than one and kind of do the ju- do the juggle. I'm torn. So I did a deep dive into this stuff and I've just picked up two new credit cards. I think I alluded to both on the episode. I got the Chase Sapphire Reserve, which by the way, I just saw an article yesterday. That card has become so popular that they're now renaming bank accounts at Chase to Sapphire and Sapphire Reserve. We'll share an article of that in the, in the show notes. Pretty cool. And then I picked up the the AA by City. Uh, so I have those two, and I'm already like I'm swiping some somewhere, and my two Bank of America ones, other places. It's already becoming a lot, but I'm I'm working in a new strategy to to tone it down. I'm just going to use the two new ones basically for lounge access at the airports. I like it. I'm a big fan of Priority Pass and lounge access. My buddy David Vu gifted me a priority pass uh, about a year ago so here's a a a lounge hack that hasn't been mentioned yet when you when you when you're owning one of these cards you can have family members under the same card or friend friends and family members under those cards and each one of those cards doesn't need to pay another annual fee but they get the same benefits so what he did was he basically put he created another credit card for me didn't give me the card, so I can't go out and just spend away on his account. But I get all the benefits, including the Priority Pass. Wow, good friend. And I actually tried to, when I was looking into Priority Pass, I was thinking, well, maybe I can just buy it and not do the whole new credit card thing. But it didn't look like you could buy it. I think Priority Pass is created only for a benefit of a rewards program. So uh, the Priority Pass that we're thinking of actually is confusing because you can buy Priority Pass but you can buy what we think of Priority Pass, which is actually called Priority Pass Select. Mm. So the one that you get for free with all the, you know, basically what, we, what we th- we're thinking of, free lounge access, unlimited, bringing in a guest, that is only available with credit cards. You can buy a normal Priority Pass, which gives you a free, you know, a couple of free entries or discount. That you can actually just buy straight up, but it's not worth it. It's the, okay. it, just, it doesn't give you what you want and it ends up being more expensive than just having a credit card. Okay. Well, I know the Admirals Club you can buy. I think the price is five hundred and fifty a year, or you can get it for four fifty. You know, you pay for the credit cards four fifty, uh, and then you get some bonuses with it. So I just did that. I think between those two, it, even if I don't use the credit cards, I'm looking at a thousand dollars a year to h- have both the cards. I get probably four hundred to five hundred dollars re- returned in terms of travel credits or cash back. So it's like five hundred bucks at the end of the year. I get 
lounge access at you know pretty much international coverage, that's worth it to me even if I don't use the cards. I'm actually surprised when you mentioned that some airports didn't allow you to use the lounge even if flying business or first class. That's insane. Man, I think it's a new thing in the U.S. I'm pretty sure it's all domestic flights in the U.S. Uh, Definitely AA, American. If you fly international, yes, you get lounge access. If you just fly first class like I just did from San Francisco to Tampa, nope. Not Not any longer. And there was people in line in front of me saying the same thing. Hey, I'm flying first class and they didn't get lounge access. Wow. I'd be pissed. I would be so mad. Yeah. You know, they're cutting corners everywhere in the U.S. I'm just, you know, honestly, I I am so happy I don't live here. Everything's even more expensive than I remember. And it's like, I mean, they're nickel and diming you. Yeah. I, I've, I've actually really warmed up to it recently after I got over the move-in thing. I just got done with a month in California. I absolutely loved it. It was expensive, yes, but man, it's just like it's a good vibe over there and the vineyards and the beach. I was loving it. Arizona was cool. Back in Tampa, I'm actually really content just in a routine here. People seem happier, and I, I was trying to figure out why. I'm like, back in Tampa, everyone's happy. You're holding doors for people, smiling. I'm like, what the hell has changed? And someone said, duh, summer's over. I'm like, summer's not over. It's August. He's like, no, summer's over, meaning kids are back in school. Ah. So everyone's like a little bit relieved because they have more space and there's less kids running around screaming. So I think that actually might be part of it. It could be. You know, honestly, life in L.A. is great. I'm having an awesome time going out, eating amazing food every night. Went to a nice cocktail bar yesterday. You know, I'm riding these bird scooters everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they're everywhere. So if you guys don't know what they are, they're basically a Razor scooter that is electrified by Segway and they're just littered on the street and you just use an app for $1 plus 15 cents a minute or, you know, I don't know, what it is, something like that. You can ride these scooters wherever you are and then just leave them. So really cool concept, pretty fun, especially in LA where it's pretty flat, everything's pretty close. But, you know, I catch myself every time we go out, dinner is literally fifty dollars a person you know when you factor in one drink you know tax tip it's a fifty dollar bill every time you go out it's insane yeah it's expensive here there's no doubt you gotta if you try to live our lifestyle here you're gonna get creamed right if you're eating out three meals a day and trying to do all these activities you're gonna get creamed people here you know all my friends here they're in routine right they're not they're not spending on these one-off things they have a gym membership they have where they work, they have their house, they go do something on the weekends, but they're not eating out, you know, 10 meals a, a week or anything like that. It's, you know, it's a, it's a different lifestyle than we're, we're used to living. Um, I can't wait to be, get, get back to Chiang Mai where meals out are $2. <laughs> In Ukraine, it was, you know, 10 or 15 max for wine, steak, dessert. Yeah, but Johnny, you could just make three times as much money and then you could have the option to do that anywhere in the world instead of three countries. You know what? (laughs) That is true, but I'd have to be working three times as much. So I don't know (laughs) if that is a priority right now. Fair enough. But what I do miss is the credit card points that I used to just rack up when I was running my e-commerce store. Yeah. And that allowed me to fly business class around the world from San Francisco to Chiang Mai, Chiang Mai to South Africa. And it made it so not only, you know, can I go to cheaper places and enjoy, you know, a great life uh, for, you know, three months or five months at, the, you know, at a time, that journey there was pleasant. 
Mm-hmm. I think the difference between flying economy and flying business class is dreading the trip as soon as you think you know you book it for those few yep. months before, dreading those twelve or fifteen hours on the flight and then feeling like crap after, or yep. booking a business class flight and being excited and looking forward to it, and then while you're on the plane, being in you know basically being pampered and being comfortable for fifteen hours and arriving super relaxed. Uh, man, I agree totally. The anticipation, whether it's a good or a negative, is much more so than the eight-hour flight that you're going to be on. But as you alluded to, where these points really become impactful is in business, right? Because personal spending, we're always going to be in a range of what we're spending. Points are only going to accumulate so fast. But if you have a business, man, these things can go up like crazy. My friend that's got the cosmetic business in London, they're spending a million dollars on their credit card. And it's his business. So each month, he's he's getting all these <laughs> points. He'll basically fly first class for the rest of his life off these points, unless they do something crazy to devaluate these points, which I, I could certainly see happening. But if you own a business out there or you have a, a spending account on a business, if you get the right credit card, man, you can really reap in the benefits of these points for a long time. So I would encourage people to definitely take a look at that. Johnny, what are you doing for credit cards right now? What's in your wallet? So uh, left over from when I had my e-commerce business, I still have the Barclay Arrival Plus. Mm-hmm. The reason why I have it is, to me, it's the perfect balance of the ease of cashback as well as the benefits of miles. Uh, I, I don't get lounge access, so luckily I have David who hooked me up with that. Uh, but what it does give me is 2% basically cashback. It's only... Mm-hmm redeemable for cash on travel purchases, but it's not like one of those uh, normal travel you know, mile uh, programs where you have to log into the specific site, look through their inventory, book a flight through, you know, through AA or through whatever um, partner they have or transfer points. Honestly, I think it's a huge waste of time. I've, wrote, I've written a couple blog posts about it on johnnyfd.com about how it's just not worth it. I mean, yes, you can sometimes, you know, hack your way into a first-class flight for much cheaper, but in general, you're it's another full-time job or another part-time job you're picking up just to try to save a couple bucks. Mm-hmm. The, uh, for Barclay, basically, it ends up being cash that they return, you know, 30 days later. And the reason why I chose the Barclay one over the, uh, the competitors is Barclay has a redemption bonus, which they used to give another 10% back. Now I think it's, I think it's 5%. So basically it ends up being like 2.05% back on all purchases. And when I was running thirty, $40,000 a month through my credit cards, running my dropshipping store, that was a lot of points. And that let me fly business class around the world. Got it. So the way that I'm doing it right now, aside from the two new cards that I just picked up, I have two Bank of America cards, one for personal one for business. So of course, everything personal, my day-to-day stuff, I put on my personal card. I would say half of my expenditures are business related. So there's you know all types of flying around for property, flying around for business, the angel investments here in Tampa. I'm, I'm here working with a company, so a lot of our meals and stuff. So I'll put that on the, my Bank of America business card. And then at the end of each month, I go through that statement and I'll categorize which one of my projects or businesses that that particular expense is for. And then I got these two new cards, 
which I'm basically going to spend on until I get the bonus. And then I'm probably going to leave them dormant because even the Chase Sapphire Reserve gets pretty incredible points. But I'm just not sure that it's worth it to the, the extra accounting and going through each month and pulling out different expenses to add to my, you know, my expense sheets. Uh, I think it's it's doesn't make as much sense as just continuing the current method I've been using for so long and, you know, eight years now. Uh, it's just a, a simple process that I don't really think about throwing in two more credit cards just for the points, probably not worth it for me. But if my spending picks up, uh, especially if my business spending picks up, I'll definitely be looking to capture more value out of these cards. A couple of solutions to that. One is have each card be specific for one purpose and that way you don't have to categorize it. You can just say everything that I ever charge on this card is for this business. Everything I charge on this card is just for personal you know, etc. Uh, I try to do that. Uh, luckily, what I do is I kind of just wrap all my businesses into one business and just say, mm-hmm. you know, everything that I spend on these two cards are business expense. Everything on this uh, third kind of backup card is personal expenses. You know, usually groceries or uh, things that there's, there's no way I can justify as a business expense. Yeah. And right. that one I just don't even look at. A couple of things that Ted said that I wanted to underscore that I thought were particularly cool and I also took action on. So my credit score from the Chase Res- uh, Sapphire Reserve came in at 664. Ted was talking about the credit utilization rate, which I thought was interesting. And I actually perceived it to be the incorrect way. I thought you'd want to use up a lot of your credit uh, and then pay it off. I thought that would look good. Turns out it's the opposite. You want to not use as much of the credit that's allocated to you. So I called up my bank, uh, Bank of America, and I got my business card uh, extended from 20000 to 30000 Quick call, took two minutes. And then while I was on with the agent, I asked, hey, can you see my credit score? And she goes, yeah, it's uh, 764. And I go, well, that's weird because Chase Sapphire Reserve showed it as 664. And Ted on the episode was like, yeah, that's probably hurting that one little uh, delinquency or whatever I have on on the collections note. That's probably hurting you a hundred points. Oh, exactly. Right? So it was it was a hundred points exactly. And I think what was happening was Bank of America, however they pull the credit, beca- maybe because the the bill that I had or the debt that I had was in collections was medical, and it was so small. I think they may have just discounted it or whatever report they pulled didn't even show it up. But I did end up yesterday getting on the phone with that collections company. I got it paid for $5. They said I could expedite it. It would be off my record in 48 hours. So I paid the 5 bucks. <laughs> so it was 80 bucks total. It's gone. And now I'm pretty confident my credit score is back up to you know high 700s. Nice. I was laughing at your demise. And I'm sorry for that. But I was thinking, <laughs> how is this guy – Always coming up with new mistakes that we can learn from. <laughs> Where does this come from? Pay off your debts. Pay off your debts. I was actually kind of happy that my credit scar- my credit score got hit because it gave, you know, we talk about lending club and everyone that's running away with our loans and nothing ever happens to them. But something does happen to them, right? Their their credit score is getting whacked. And you know, especially for people, unfortunately, people that really need to borrow money to to get by, oftentimes they can't because there is this thing called the credit score that stays on top of it. And it just goes to prove like I had a small debt that I had forgotten about. And lo and behold, that was affecting my credit score and definitely would affect my ability to borrow money if I needed to. So I just put on my credit score. I'm really happy that with Capital One, which is where I have two backup cards, 
so my, my main card that I, I try to pay all my business expenses through is that Barclay Rival Plus just for the the two you know the two percent basic basically cash back. Mm-hmm. But I also have a Quicksilver card by Capital One that is one point five percent straight cash, which to me is pretty fair. You know, it's not the highest we can get, but I'm just, you know I'm happy with with that amount. And I have as a kind of personal backup card that I don't use that very often the Venture One card by Capital One. I like having backup credit cards. Um, kind of quick note as well, Charles Schaub has an ATM card that with automatically reimburses all ATM fees worldwide. So whether you are using a credit card, I mean, uh, you're an ATM in Thailand and getting charged you know, a couple hundred baht for their fees, that gets returned. You can even be in a strip club in Ukraine they will refund those outrageous fees. Not, not you know, not talking from personal experience or anything, but wherever you are in the world, they will re- refund a hundred percent of the ATM fees. It is amazing, and Charles Schaub does it as well as I believe Fidelity as well. Good insight. So, guys, I hope you enjoyed this, and hope you yeah. got some out of this credit cards episode. It was fun, actually. Not something we were kind of planning fun. on doing, but uh, oh, and guess what? So the reason I brought up Capital One. They give you your free credit report as well. I just pulled mine up. You want to oh, try yeah, to, what is it? You want to try to guess? Uh, Higher or lower than... than uh, I'm going to guess you're... I'm going to guess you don't have any debts. Uh, I'm going to guess you're like seven seven fifty five. Seven eighty eight. Oh, Ooh. nice. That's high. And what's actually really cool is um, with their free credit-wise report, it actually shows you what's impacting the credit. So mm. the five things that are making my credit go- score go up is... 100% on-time payments, having a very old credit line, which is 16 years old, excellent credit being used. So I'm only using 5% of my total credit. So I think what it is, is if you don't use any of your credit, it looks bad. And I, and I actually think if you use 100% of credit, it also looks bad. Yeah. So you kind of want to be some in the middle. Available credit across all channels. And what he, what he had mentioned is correct, where they want, you know, you'd have a slightly higher credit line. But I've actually heard that in times of recession, sometimes in general, if you have too much available credit, you are also a risk because they know that you can just go crazy one day. Ooh, interesting. Yep. New accounts, they don't like it when you open too many accounts within the past two years. So that is one reason why, you know, these travel hackers that open, you know, 10, you know, five or 10 credit cards all the time, uh, they also get dings to their, their credit. I only opened one in the last two years. And also recent inquiries. So people that, you know, whenever people pull up your credit report, whether it's, uh, you know, a car, um, you know, shopping for a car or mortgage or credit card. I've had three in the past two years, which isn't many, but that actually brought my credit score down a little bit. That's pretty, pretty transparent credit report. Yeah, I'm really, really happy with it. Um, Highly encourage everyone to stop using debit cards, uh, as he mentioned it is there's no benefit to you it's convenient but once you have a fraud report and i guarantee you know everyone in our lives we're gonna get you know our cards cloned somewhere in the world or stolen you don't want that money pulled out of your account for you to try to get back three months later you rather always use a credit card because you can just fight it and just never pay it it's mm-hmm. so much easier you get you get the, the points they add up and flying business class is absolutely worth it. So read us in this episode if you have to. Let us know in the Boss Lounge, especially if you're not from the U.S. Because I know 
even though people say there are no options, there are. The, oh, yeah. the Amex um, Platinum that he had mentioned on the show, that is available worldwide. So there's definitely, definitely ways to do it. Let us know in the Boss Lounge what cards you use because it'd be a great discussion. And uh, yeah, enjoy uh, the rest of Tampa. There, there's plenty of things to spend money on and rack up points. <laughs> we'll, we'll be doing that. And guys, appreciate all the reviews. We are now crossing 155 star reviews in the U.S. I don't wow. even. I can't track them internationally. You, can you track them internationally, Johnny? You know what? We had pod buds or something, but it's yeah, not working it's anymore. It's like kind of worked and it didn't, but. Anyways, we appreciate all the international reviews. Appreciate all the reviews in the U.S. All these are helping us bring in international guests and, of course, learn lots from them. So keep those reviews coming. We appreciate it. And we got a good lineup of episodes coming up over the next couple months as we crank back into Invest Like a Boss. It's been a good summer, Johnny, but I think it's time to get back to work. I think it is. So uh, great talking to you, Sam, and good luck to everyone out there. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.